Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today we have two guests, Alexis Borisi and Melanie Nalasheri. Alexis is the chairman and CEO of EQRX, and Melanie is the president and chief operating officer. EKRX is a startup in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It aspires to develop new medicines for serious diseases like cancer. That's nothing unusual. What is unusual is that EKRX is seeking to create a company that makes a profit, but does so by churning out many new drugs so it can get by without resorting to the unjustifiable price increases or outright price gouging that has poisoned the reservoir of public trust in the biopharmaceutical industry. Creating many new drugs, huh? Easier said than done, right? It's hard enough to develop a single innovative new drug that wins FDA approval. Merck's R&D chief has called it a bloody miracle anytime a company actually does it. Few companies ever do it, two times, three times, or more. EQRX is seeking to mitigate its scientific risk somewhat by pursuing a fast follower strategy in which the underlying target biology is relatively well known and it can learn and quickly adapt to development plans laid out by trailblazers in a new therapeutic category. By reducing technical risk as a fast follower, EQRX believes it can run faster, cheaper, lean and mean clinical trials with a higher probability of success. That would reduce its R&D spending and opportunity cost. If it can pull this off several times in a row, the diversified portfolio should give it the flexibility to price its products a lot cheaper. That's the thinking. Okay, fine, you might say. But then there are commercial obstacles in the way to anyone hoping to create an innovative biotech company with a high volume, low margin business model. Pharmacy benefit managers prefer for drugs to have high list prices because they can make their money by negotiating discounts for health plans and keeping their own cut of that pretty large discount. Then there are cancer doctors who get to pocket a percentage for themselves when they prescribe many infusion-based medicines. That means a higher list price translates into more money for themselves. You might be skeptical. Plenty of people are. Drug pricing has been so dysfunctional for so long. So many vulnerable people in our society have felt exploited and gouged and ripped off for so long. They flat out don't trust the biopharmaceutical industry. And there's a good reason to be skeptical. Now one last thing before we start. This conversation was recorded at EQRX offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts on February 25th. That was before the novel coronavirus was officially declared a global pandemic. The world has changed since. This conversation might sound like it's from a distant era, a time warp. In fact, it was just a month ago. What's interesting to me, though, is that the issues that we discuss here, the bad behavior of pharma, the perverse incentives of middlemen, these fundamentals will still be with us after the pandemic passes. All sorts of terrible behaviors that were abusive and cruel business as usual before are actually now being reassessed in this new environment. There's still very much, though, a simmering tension underneath the surface of all of this collective spirit in combating the coronavirus. For instance, this week, the minute an old generic chloroquine was floated as a possible treatment for COVID-19, it was immediately reported that the manufacturer had doubled the price in recent weeks. Outrage, predictably, ensued. 
This is the operating environment EQRX will have to operate in as it grows up as a company. It has a strategy that was purpose-built from the start to be able to survive in a Medicare for All system or some other system in which a heavy-handed government buyer could clamp down on drug prices. There's a lot here to think about in terms of how pharma can and should operate, whether you agree or disagree with what Alexis and Melanie exactly have in mind. Last thing before we start. I want to say to everyone, I appreciate all the fan mail that I get regularly from listeners to the long run. People tell me every day how valuable this show is to them. It means a lot to me personally. But this isn't how I make a living and keep doing what I do. If you want to support quality biotech journalism, there's one clear way. Go to TimmermanReport.com and purchase a subscription. They cost $149 a year or $50 for a three-month subscription. Group discounts are available for companies and universities. If you don't already subscribe, go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe. And if you do subscribe, thank you, and encourage your friends to get one too. It's an investment in quality biotech journalism at a time when the world needs it. Now, please join me and Alexis Borisi and Melanie Nala Sherry on the long run. Alexis Borisi, CEO of EQRX, Melanie Nala Sherry, President and COO of EQRX, welcome to the long run. We're pleased to be here. Great to be here. So let's go right into this. This is a a company got started last year, just a few months ago, brand new. Um, Alexis, I know that you were a partner at Third Rock Ventures for many years. Uh, You left, I think this was 2018, to figure out what your next move was going to be? Officially left in the summertime uh, last year, so 2019. Okay, okay. But so you had this period of scoping out what you wanted to do next. How could you describe your thought process on what it was that you wanted to do next and why? So, and I should say, uh, you know, July was my first official post third rock time and the intention and, and Melanie's is, uh, as well, uh, cause she had just left foundation medicine. I think we were both planning on just sort of taking some time off on in the summer and, uh, and enjoying, um, and uh, maybe unfortunately for us both, we started talking uh, and spending time together uh, and EQRX just got off and running because it became something uh, we felt so strongly that we had to do uh, and that we got going on it probably before uh, what had been the plan. But I've been thinking broadly uh, in the area of both what We have been able to do how our technology has advanced our skills and capabilities in the hardcore domain of science-based, clinical-based medical innovation, right? And we're talking therapeutics, diagnostics, medical devices, hardcore, regulated, deep science and clinical ingrained life sciences innovation. This has been your life for been my life. 10 right. years. Every, every bit of cool science, all the, the tools of technology that equip the modern lab and what they can be put to work on. Like you've had exposure to all of this. Yes. And more than 10 years. I mean, 10 years at Third Rock. Uh, and it's been 25 years uh, you know, since I dropped out of graduate school to go do this. This completely enmeshed in that world. And one of the things I've realized is that those of us in that world – 
and thinking about what is possible, what can be done through these breakthrough innovations, what technology is making possible. You know, we really were not thinking, not paying attention, and not interacting with the world of our health systems, of the payers, the employer groups, the governments who pay for those innovations, uh, the provider groups that use it. Those worlds, the worlds of medical innovation and the health systems that then use those innovations to make life better, really don't intersect. And they don't intersect, and it's even down to sort of the soft networks of the people. The people don't know each other, they don't uh, interact with each other, and they don't really even think about each other uh, so much. Now, the members of the innovation community, let's call it, that you were a part of, uh, tend to operate on this assumption that, you know, if we just do something awesome with innovation, we come up with a new drug that helps patients, uh, you know, all that stuff will work itself out with the health system. We'll charge, you know, a good amount of money, we'll, we'll, we'll make money and reward our investors and we'll do it again. Uh, but no, you, you're, <clears throat> you had something of an epiphany. And you talked about this when we spoke uh, before JP Morgan about uh, some, some old wisdom from your grandmother, where, you know, there's such a thing <laughs> as being smart, 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 but dumb. Yeah, yeah. That's and, and, something my grandmother often said to me, probably very deserved at different times when I was doing something uh, stupid. Now, before we get to Melanie and how this like starts to take on a life of its own as a company, what do you mean by – elaborate on that concept of smart, 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 but dumb. Yeah. You know, uh, Luke, I mean, you, you just said uh, – something in there, which is incredibly true, right? In, in, in the heart of innovation, we'd say, okay, if we just make it, and if it is incredible and blow away, people will come and it'll all be fine. And that is a beautiful thing. Uh, but we actually have to make trade-offs as a society. We have to make society work. We want to uh, everybody wants to live long, healthy lives, as long, healthy lives as can be possible. We also want those lives to be rich. We want them to be rich in culture. We want them to be rich in education. We want them to be safe and secure and with tremendous amounts of infrastructure. In most industries, when you talk about uh, entrepreneurs and innovators, they're ultimately trying to say, how do we utterly delight the customers and we have to recognize as an industry, when we talk about innovation, our customers are, yes, absolutely those patients that we're looking to cure. Yes, it is absolutely are those physicians and we're trying to give them the tools that they need. But it is also the societies as a whole, because oftentimes there are trade-off decisions of values of society that we need to make. And the question is, how do we really bring great innovation that will help us live longer, healthier lives in the context that delights our society. So we got to do a better job of delivering better health care, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, not really the job of a pharmaceutical company. There's all kinds of other people that need to do a better job at extending Absolutely. access Look, there's a huge to these innovations. You can only do so much. <laughs> Correct. But, but, but you, you know... <clears throat> You do see all that science and all that technology and how it can be brought to bear, not just for developing novel medicines that are going to be, you know, 10 times higher priced than what we have currently or had before, but maybe even price less and get more of them. So, like, you begin to, th you're scoping out, like, the beginnings of a concept for a company. Yeah. And then Melanie comes in. How, um, can you... 
how did you enter this this picture here, Melanie? And what what excited you about EQRX? So, look, two two things. First of all, Alexis and I we work together at Foundation Medicine, so that's how we knew each other, and we'd been talking and sort of knew that we saw a lot of things very similarly. And, and perhaps two thoughts that led to the formation um, of EQRX. The first one is what we were just discussing. So innovation today must be in the service of humanity. And the definition of that is not only delivering and making a great medicine. We're failing as an industry if that medicine doesn't get to the people who actually need it the most, right? And so if there are hurdles... And there are lots of them today for patients to get access to that innovation, then ultimately we're not delivering on the promise. So that was sort of one really fundamental thought that I had. The second one is I have for the close to three decades that I've been in life sciences and healthcare, exactly what Alexis was just describing. By serendipity, I crossed over from the life sciences where I started with launching medicines, developing medicines into health services because some of my colleagues said, well, we need someone who knows about drugs. Can you come and talk to this health insurance company with us? And a decade later, I'd really learned about PBMs and health plan operations and how health plans and um, health systems actually operate. And then, as you know, having been what I call part of the channel, I filled in that middle piece. Like what happens between the manufacturer and ultimately the pharmacy or the physician's office? And so I had firsthand knowledge of how the economics work themselves through the system. And I knew there was just so much room for improvement. So you take these two things together. When we were talking, it was just so utterly clear to us, there is room here to do what we do best as an industry differently, to do it better. And by doing that, creating an amazing business, but ultimately lowering the cost of these medicines radically and enough so that everybody can benefit from them. Now, did a lot of this learning occur at McKesson, the big distributor that you were at before foundation, or was this prior? It was both. I mean, prior to that, as is a, um, an advisor, I spent a lot of time with, as I said, health plans, with the blues, with PBMs, and so understood that. And I've worked internationally, not just in the United States. And so seeing the differences and appreciating the differences between the different healthcare systems. But certainly, the McKesson experience gave me a front row seat into how do the economics really work in the channel. Okay, so very clearly, I mean, Alexis, you're a scientist by training, entrepreneur and venture capitalist. You're looking at Melanie and thinking, here's someone with complementary skills, like relationships and knowledge that I don't have. This, this is what you want in a co-founder. Okay, so now let's let's talk about the strategy. We also work great together, too. Well, you, <laughs> you, you, having, having previous relationships is very important for doing this because you don't want to work with somebody that you really detest. <laughs> That's not fun. Um, but, okay, so let's talk about the strategy, like EQRX. Let's come up with fast follower medicines. Let's use the tools we've got to develop fast follower medicines. How did this strategy uh, come 
come together? And maybe one way to think of it is like, what were some ideas that you threw up against the wall and just didn't stick? Yeah. You know, you, you look, you said at one point, you, you said like sort of, you know, this, this uh, epiphany going back. Um, uh, let's roll the clock back 25 years. So, uh, and when I was first getting involved in this industry and I was involved in uh, the launch of a new cancer drug. Now, this was before we didn't have breakthrough therapy designations back then. This is a drug that would have been uh, uh, there. It was as important then as you might say the anti-PD-1s uh, are today compared to what the standard of care it was a big, uh, uh, a big advance. And, you know, if you take a look at what the price of that drug, if you inflated it to today's dollars, uh, the the cost of that drug for a patient over the course of sort of a year was twenty thousand U.S. dollars, right? So to be clear, right, like that is an order of magnitude less than what we charge for a new uh, important cancer drug today accounting for inflation, right? That's after inflation adjustment. Yeah, I remember that. And we're not that old. We're not that old. <laughs> and it's, it's remarkable how, how this has gotten away from people. Correct. Now, at the same time, um, I was watching this uh, very enjoyable documentary uh, a couple weeks ago on a trans, uh, transcon flight. Uh, it was on General Magic, which was a, a, a company that, you know, from a bunch of people from Apple, they basically were envisioning this the smartphone ahead of the time, you know, uh, and the company ended up not having a great uh, outcome, but really amazing people, truly visionary in what they were assembling. And I was looking back at that uh, documentary and I was remembering because I was like back when I was in, you know, uh, uh, graduate school and just remember what the world was like 25 years ago. And we were just having this thing, right? There was this new thing, the World Wide Web, and uh, you had the academic browser mosaic, and we didn't have, well, I didn't have a cell phone, that was before cell phones, and I was thinking back on like what we knew, what our skills were then, right? Just so we forget how different the world was in some ways technologically 25 years ago, and that was also true in our capabilities for making drugs and what we were doing in our understanding of the biology. We understand today so much more for some diseases, not all, the molecular mechanisms of the disease, the ability to look into a specific patient population and say, this is why this group of people, this is what's going around, wrong on a molecular basis, why they end up having this disease. And if we could just create a drug that would modify this target in just this way, we would have a huge effect size. This like is wildly different than where we were 25 years ago and our tools for then creating the drug embodiment of that, be it a small molecule, be it a uh, antibody or other biologic, be it a gene modifying therapy. Now the tools we have are incredibly uh, different and better. And it just is simply our ability today to create very high caliber drugs is radically different than it was a generation ago. It is radically better, yet at the same time, we're charging a radically higher price for those. That's not the way that it works in almost any industry. It's particularly true in cancer and rare diseases. It's not quite as true. We're not entirely there yet on the really big multifactorial diseases, neurodegeneration, Correct. et cetera. But you, know, you can see a, a through line to that somewhere in the future. Um, but I would also add that we as a society have invested in this. We paid for the human, Gen human genome project. And that is like just one example of many things that we as a society, coming yeah. back to that, have yeah. invested in. Yeah. And we're now in a position to reap some of the innovation dividends. Yes. Actual benefits for patients. But 
we're not getting them equitably distributed. Yeah. Uh, it's a problem. Well, you're, you're, you're thinking about, okay, how can we use these tools? Now, so you came out, you, you raised $200 million. Uh, you, you got all the right connections in uh, investment world to, to do something pretty ambitious here. Uh, you roll this thing out at JP Morgan. And it's the craziest thing. I mean, a little company nobody's ever heard of steals the show, gets all the buzz. What was that about? Why, why do you think you, you, you resonated in such a big way yeah. across the industry? You know, I, in the tech world, they talk sort of about trying to find the product zeitgeist fit. I, I think we are hitting the zeitgeist of the moment. I think most people in our industry understand that we are charging higher prices than what we fundamentally need to. And I think people understand that our tools and technologies and the ability to create very high quality molecules has radically improved from where we were a generation ago. And I think people feel uncomfortable in their gut. Maybe people don't want to say it. Maybe people don't want to throw the flag. But there is a feeling and understanding, I think both within our industry, there is certainly, maybe there's not understanding outside of our industry, but there is popular uh, unrest and upsetness at our industry. I mean, like, that's the reason why we are Remarkably, we are the worst opinioned industry, right? The public hates our industry more than Congress, more than the tobacco companies, right. more than the energy companies, more than everything, mm -hmm. right? Why is that? We create life-saving pro life products. And, and our products, some of the you know recent ones we have been launching are better than they've ever been. Mm -hmm. So we're coming out with better and better products and people are hating us more and more. I think there's a, a recognition maybe inside people in their guts, hopefully maybe in their souls a little bit, that there are opportunities to do this differently. Mm -hmm. And perhaps if I can add, Luke, I think the other thing is everybody has, of course, read all the policy proposals that are out there. And um, some of them are pretty threatening to the industry. And I think this is the first time someone has spoken up and said, there's a market-based solution to that. And oh, by the way, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean cheap, right? That, that still rewards innovation. So I think in many ways, we've offered up an alternative to something that everybody knows needs a solution. Yeah, the proposals for those not following it day to day are Medicare for all, single payer, muscular public option, like a really bigger, stronger Medicare, or international price indexing. And there's pretty much bipartisan consensus, maybe not for each and every one of these, but somewhere in the middle of these three big ones, <clears throat> a deal could happen. And it would be um, suffocating for a whole lot of innovators out there. This is the kind of company that perhaps it could be built to survive such yep. a, such a environment we want innovation to survive and thrive in the long run uh, and we see ecrx as a company to do that 
Now, we recognize this is a disruptor company, disrupting lots of ways that things happen in the industry today. But as we are trying to rethink, reimagine, and re-engineer right, the whole process of how you make drugs, how you build the evidence around them, and how you sell them, how you move them through the channel, how you price them, and what the whole commercial infrastructure uh, looks like, we want to create that basis that can bring sustainable innovation right? Great new innovative products to patients and society in the long run in a sustainable manner. Okay. So let's, let's talk, maybe you, you could walk me through a hypothetical example of how you can imagine this unfolding in say a best case scenario. Um, where, where do you start? Well, so you know, it's, it's a, it's a great thing. Like you say, we're looking to re-engineer the system across how you make the drugs, how you prove they work, uh, and how you sell them. And a lot of people immediately go to, are they saying that they're going to have some magic technology wand and they're just going to whip up these drugs? Yeah, you're going you're gonna to AI the heck out of it. Right. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah, you know, like, you know, making drugs is hard. I mean, let's be clear about that. And let's also be clear that when we say we are going to lower the risk-adjusted unit cost of making a drug, and we can get into a whole great debate of what is the unit risk-adjusted unit cost of making a drug today. But if you take the Tufts study as a classically accepted study, that's about $3 billion. If you do other analyses, and you've done some of these and published on them, you can range from $1.5 billion to $6 billion. Um, that is a risk-adjusted cost of making a drug. If you talk about direct costs in a drug, it's $375 million on average, and that ranges from $50 million in the low end to over a billion uh, uh, you know, on, on the high end of making things. But so if we take that $3 billion risk-adjusted number, because it's the most commonly one. Includes a lot of opportunity cost around failures. Absolutely. We're saying our risk-adjusted unit cost is going to be closer to $300 million. That's an order of magnitude less. However, right, it is still a lot of money, right? It still takes a lot of time, and it still takes a lot of money to create a great new drug, and it's a hard thing to do. And we're not whiffing, you know, having a wand of... Uh, artificial intelligence magic over it. But so a lot of people that go in and say the hard part is coming up with the drug molecules, part of what I'd say to people is step back for a moment. Look at our capability of creating molecules today compared to what it was a generation ago and just recognize how much better it is now. And two, open your eyes and take a look broadly. Like the competitive intensity of the industry on the creation of molecules has already come up much, much more than where it was before. And in fact, a lot of molecules that meet what we're looking for are equally as good or better exist today and that people aren't developing them because they maybe they're fourth in class, fifth in class, sixth in class, and maybe they're not molecules that are a slam dunk that they would be best in class molecules. Maybe they are molecules that if you invested a lot in clinical development and it, you were requiring that you could prove that it was better than, that that would be a risky enterprise. But if instead your target product profile was to say, I want to make sure that it is equal. Now, I, I don't want it to be worse. 
right? So I'm going to say I'm going after equally as good or better, but I don't need to prove that it's better. And I'm not going to charge society for it being better. If the clinical evidence ends up showing it's better, that just comes along to society as a benefit beyond. I want to prove to the highest standards that it is equally as good. Those molecules and the ability to create those molecules, that is not a dream that is something that exists broadly today. Well, it's been around forever. I mean, the statin class is a good example. L- we have uh, lots think, of examples. Lipitor was something like fifth or sixth. Seventh. Mark? Seventh. Sixth. 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 Maybe seventh in class. Yeah. It ended up. Crestor was seventh. Okay, Crestor was seventh, and, that and they still the sold like three to five billion a year. And and that was the last one to go generic. Yeah. But um, those were um, you know drugs that were fast followers, n- novel, so to speak, slightly different chemical composition. Outside pa- of people's outside of people's patents, freedom pat- to operate. Patent busting. Yeah. Um, but um, they weren't generics. Correct. Um, we now have generics. You're not doing generics. You want to do novel drugs where you can still uh, make a profit. Uh, but let's... And we want to make a good profit. Just not a 99% gross margin. Correct. You might be able to live with a 90% gross margin or an 80% gross margin. Correct. That's right. <laughs> um, this is an important point. Okay. But back to that question I had. Where do you start? Um, yeah. Is it oncology? Is it rare disease? Is it an area where, gosh, the, the, the structural biology is just like really nailed well and it really is a matter of coming up with a slightly different small molecule with slightly different properties that you think may be equal or better? Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, Melanie will jump on a, a bunch of this here, but I think as you, ju- you know, you'd said like, where do we start? And I said, look, a lot of people, when they think about what we're doing, immediately goes to, is this a magic wand? And I said, no, it's not a magic wand to the point you just said. Actually, in the eCurx business model, having the molecules, although not easy, is the easiest part of what we're doing. The hardest part is this reshaping of the system, how it works. And so how do you start? The only way you can build a disruptor that re-engineers this whole system is uh, is you have to do it at scale. If you try to do this one drug at a time, it doesn't work. You have to be doing this very broadly uh, at scale. Okay, so Melanie, we got to talk about this system and how (laughs) it's currently constructed. It needs to be torn down or reimagined maybe from the ground up. Is that is that how you're thinking? Reimagine for sure. And the way we're thinking about it is um, at scale, as Alexis was just saying, but also really thinking about where do we see the greatest burden today? And the burden can be defined by what's the burden on the entire healthcare system? So total cost. It can also be just what is too difficult for patients to get access to? You know, where are there lots of hurdles in a way? Where is there a lot of friction such as out-of-pocket burden on patients? And I know the industry is always saying, yeah, but we have patient assistance programs and everybody can actually get access to a drug. But that's not entirely true. We know for a fact that Every time a single prescription has an out-of-pocket burden of $250 or more, 70% gets abandoned, meaning either the first script gets never filled or 
subsequent scripts don't get filled. That means patients are actually not ending up on the medicines that could really benefit them, which means we don't have the outcomes. And therefore, we're seeing that. There was a study in October, I think, um, that showed a strong correlation between the out-of-pocket burden on patients for certain types of cancer drugs for non-small cell lung cancer, and it showed a statistically significant correlation where the mortality was just higher with high, high out-of-pocket costs. So, but now this is the insurance problem. A lot of people in pharma might say that this is not our problem. But it's everybody's problem. See, I think the the it's it's so easy to do this, right, and to point your finger at the other person, the other middleman. Uh-huh. First of all, we have so many middlemen right now, nobody can really keep track of who's actually doing what. Middle people. Uh, yeah. Middle people. Middle people. And, and the incentives are just horrible. They're, they're perverse beyond belief. Absolutely. And so that's what we mean when we're saying we have to reimagine all of this because if you're simply lowering the price, we've seen this with biosimilars. Right. And you can argue whether the price reductions were significant enough, but we didn't see the uptake. And why didn't we? Because it didn't hit on all of the pieces of the system. Like, what does the physician need in order for this to make sense? What does the distributor need for this to make sense, etc.? Everybody carves up a little bit of the entire economics. And there's just room for us to lower the overall cost burden on the system and actually take complexity out of what we're seeing today. And, and Luke, you know, one of the things you said, like, well, people say, hey, what about that? That's the health insurance problem. Or other people say, hey, that's the PBM who's, you know, or other people say, hey, it's the pharmaceutical company. You know, you can get into all sorts of philosophy on, like, what is the right value of a life? <clears throat> what is the right price? to be charging for an innovative drug, who bears the responsibility, how should insurance be designed, should things be governmentally driven, should they be private? At the end of the day, for EQRX, this goes back to that sort of, you know, when this the summertime when we realized this could be done, and if it could be done, it should be done, and that if it should be done, we had to go do it, is we see a simple, clear business opportunity because right now, again, regardless of where you say, you know, who's pointing fingers at who, the prices that are charged for great innovative drugs versus what we think that risk-adjusted cost of delivering great new innovative medicines using the model that we're talking about, that we can deliver those great new innovative medicines at scale at a much lower unit cost And given where prices are today, that spread between our ability to create great new medicines at a lower cost, that spread versus the prices that other people's charge, that is a huge business opportunity. And at EQRX, we simply say, well, we can do this and create extraordinarily high quality products that are equally as good or better. We can do it reproducibly and sustainably, so we can offer these medicines at a radically lower price, a price that is so much lower that we can actually go into all those different parties and reshape how the ecosystem actually operates. Um, I want to get to that in a second, but 
coming back to your your uh, peers in the industry, not everybody loved this. You had some haters out there, J.P. Morgan. And we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be a disruptor if we didn't have any haters. Yeah, and if you're successful, I think you'll have a whole lot more haters and they'll throw a lot more uh, hate at you. <laughs> we, we might have some lovers, too. You, you threaten their, their uh, cash cows. Um, they, big companies tend not to like that. Um, <laughs> but... Let's talk a little bit about how you do this, because what you're really talking about here is slaying the R&D inefficiency dragon. This has been like the big problem in R&D forever, and it's only gotten worse. And you're sitting here saying that you can develop new medicines for $300 million uh, risk adjusted. Basically, you're saying we've found a way to integrate all the pieces of the puzzle, the science, the technology, to squeeze out a lot of the inefficiency and the risk that's that's been our burden. Yeah. And now look, uh, and the following statements we're going to make are probably going to light up uh, a lot of people's uh, opinions. So this should at least provide some uh, good entertainment. Um, so to be clear, right, and I'm going to come back to this, we're using for the first 50 programs that we're going to go af- off go after for the next decade, we're taking a fast follower model, right? Where we're t- the biology has already been uh, proven. Uh, as you had said earlier, you know the structural biology of the target, you know the biochemistry, the biophysics, uh, you know the, the, the pharmacology and the pharmaceutical properties that you want to go after, which is an easier form of the problem. And we're using those first 50, five zero, right? Over the next decade as a, tr- as a training set where we're both gonna bring out you know, dozens of great products in this and reshape the system. We're also having reshaped the system and re-engineered in that manner, created the basis to even go after new targets in the long run in a sustainable manner. And to that point, this is the part that's going to, you know, probably get a lot of comments coming out. The one in 10 success rate that we have as an industry right now, I'm going to throw the flag. That is totally bogus. It is totally bogus and it reflects a lot of poor decision making, people working on programs that they have no business working on, people piling into areas and then just the way large organizations make, then piling out, enormous amount of inefficiencies. And again, to be clear, as an industry, we can mask over those inefficiencies because we just keep charging higher and higher prices. And with that much money running through the blockbusters, it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be one out of 10. In fact, I would argue that in some of the multiple companies that I have created and built and take enormous pride over, that you need time to play out on this, but that by 10 years from now into the future, I think if you look at some of those companies, they will not have had a one in 10 success rate. They will have had a one out of three to a one out of two success rate. Now at EQRX, in our fast follower mode, we expect to do even better than that. In the long run, in a sustainable basis, I think you could be at that one out of two success rate. It means, Luke, choosing programs where you actually understand the disease at a molecular mechanistic level. Now, you're right. Today, for certain diseases, we don't have that information yet. So it's great if we pour resources for a total crapshoot. You know what is the result of most of those total crapshoot? They fail. Okay. Now it is something, and you made the point, it's one of the great things that I am all for. I think one of the things Congress should do is continue to fund uh, our investment in basic research, uh, NIH and beyond at even more generous levels than we do today, because that helped build this industry in this country. It's the reason we're all here. Absolutely. That that investment was made after World War II. And there are all sorts of 
uh, really tough problems out there that we don't understand yet, but our investment in basic research can help us understand in the future. As an industry, you know, to cover the high prices that we charge, most large companies come and put up these huge efforts, these huge research centers. The yield rate of great new drugs coming out of those research centers is incredibly low. 70% of new drugs originate in biotech, not inside of those big research centers. Those big research centers are there as marketing cover for the, to justify the high prices, when the reality the work that's going on there is pre-competitive work that should be funded as a public good, you know, broadly out there, as opposed to using it as a fig leaf to be able to charge really high prices. As an industry, now again, let's be clear, because we've talked about some of the things in Congress and where uh, Congress says, oh, we should, you know, NIH funded something, we should march in rights, so or we should just make drugs ourselves. Academics don't know how to make drugs. This is applied engineering, applied science. Creating the drug, actually, there's a lot of work. It's what industry does really well. But if we're doing that on places where the target is clear, the biology is clear, we understand the molecular mechanism of the disease, and we can say, this group of patients, this is what's going on at a molecular level, we as an industry, with our technology today, can create incredibly high quality drugs across all sorts of modalities to create incredibly effective medicines. And the yield rate on that is nowhere near one out of 10. It's much higher and it's much better. Now, just to be clear, as an industry, there's been a disappointment in this, right? We are still bouncing back and forth between 30 and 50 new drug approvals a year. And in that precision medicine element, a lot of those drugs are for smaller and smaller patient populations. Some of them are really good. Not all of them. Not all of them. I, but the ones that are, and if you look at the overall numbers, it's like we are addressing a smaller patient population with the drugs uh, that are good. But we haven't gone from having 30 to 50 drug approvals, which is where it has been for the past 30 years. We're not having 100 drug approvals or 200 drug approvals. The future I would like to imagine is where we're actually truly much more productive as an industry, where we have the understanding of the molecular science of disease, because then we as an industry could be coming out with 100 drugs a year or 200 drugs a year, not out of a one out of 10 probability success, but a one out of two probability success. And if we were doing that, we wouldn't have to be charging the prices as high as where they are, because there would be a good business at a good level uh, of reward for society and for the innovators that are in it. I'll just say one last thing here, then I'll stop. The reality today is because we haven't had the productivity in the industry, because disappointingly, although we've had some great new insights and great new drug targets, it's not been as many as we want as society, which is why society should invest more in basic research so we have what, what we want from that. But as an industry, what we have done since our productivity hasn't increased to keep the profits growing in the industry, we've jacked price. And it's as simple as that. Yeah, and everything you just described there is why society has not gotten the memo. And it's why we, they've gotten pissed at us. That we are in a golden age of molecular medicine and possibility. Uh, they don't really see the benefits coming from their taxpayer investments. Uh, what is this you're telling me about You know, the treatment for cystic fibrosis? I mean, if you are a, a patient or family member, that means everything to you. But most people just don't know anybody who's been reaping the benefits of this latest crop. 
yeah. of innovations. So what you're what I hear you saying is that we need to, this to become much more broadly distributed. A hundred drugs a year uh, for much more common conditions, like add it all up, the millions of people who can be affected, and that you know they're not going to go broke <laughs> yeah. when when they have to take one of these medicines. Also, Luke, again, like this might not be a popular statement, but the cystic fibrosis drug would still make a lot of money and be a massively profitable uh, uh, return on investment if it cost $100,000 a year versus $375,000 a year. Yes. And let's just be blunt. Let's call the flag a flag and people can be pissed at that statement, but it is true. It's excessive and unjustified and arrogant and uh, it, it does exemplify a lot of what's gotten the industry behind the eight ball in this really bad position. But <clears throat> you, you use this word. But it's it, a spectacular drug and it's an incredible breakthrough and a example of the power of what can be done. And we want to maintain incentives to create more drugs like that. Yes. If we if we re overreact and crush the industry, we won't get more Kaleidico's, Trikaftas. I mean... <laughs> but that's why we need a market-based solution, right? Exactly. That's yeah. why we need something that's much more sophisticated than just a crude instrument. So if we let it boil over, how, how does that play out for the industry? It's not going to end well because then we'll end up with some kind of policy that's going to cut off a part of our legs. And that's not what we want. Right? You'd have like people like the Gates Foundation or the Michael J. Fox Foundation funding, you know, your occasional translational academic. It would be um, a disaster. It would be nuclear winter. Yeah. yeah. Um, Look, you know, we're hardcore capitalists. Right. I mean, it's sort of we believe in the capitalistic motivation and incentive. I mean, to be clear, again, you know, my life has been built on both going after fundamental innovation, but also the visceral motivation that capitalism offers. It makes a difference. Right. Creating new drugs, building biotech companies. It is hard. It is risky. Financial motivation is absolutely necessary and should exist. The problem, right, again, going back, is it doesn't need to be as high as it is. That, again, is just the reality of the opportunity we see at EQRX. Again, we're not trying to answer the question philosophically. We're just saying practically we can create and have access to equally as good or better drugs, right, the, the, the drug embodiment. We see that. Again, this is not a uh, you know, a flight of fancy. This is reality. They exist today. And anybody that thinks that they don't, they've got another think coming. And we're saying we can take those. And by thinking of the whole business model fundamentally differently, we can re-engineer this whole system and we can offer those products that are going to be very high quality products at a radically different price point and delight our broad set of customers being both you know, the health system, the private insurers, the government systems, the physicians, and the patients. Now, the um, when we talk about inefficiencies and perverse incentives, I mean, <laughs> I, on one level, people get that. But on the other, you know, if you're that person, like if you're the PBM or you're the insurance company, that, you're talking about your livelihood. Uh, that people naturally are going to dig in and fight to defend um, their position. They, they think they have a reason to exist. Um, You've used the analogy to different business models, uh, disruptors who came along with different ways of offering the same thing. JetBlue in low-cost airlines, Amazon with books, etc. And um, they delighted customers on, on some level uh, while pissing off a whole lot of people in that whole industry, squeezing them. 
how, how, coming back to this question about reimagining, how are we going to get to a better place where like those people in the middle are, can live with what you're saying, or, or maybe we just, they're going to have to go away. Well, so for perhaps two, two answers, Luke, to that question. The first one is, this is uh, the reason I like the analogy with the airline industry is because if you really think about it, it wasn't that Southwest rethought the plane, right? The plane was still the plane. They were thinking about how do I democratize the sky? I want to get kids home for Thanksgiving. What do I need to do for that? Well, I need to be able to fly people in a low cost way. I need to charge a lot less and I need to fly to airports where today other people don't fly. And look what happened. They were able to do just that. Southwest was actually ahead of JetBlue and JetBlue came later. Exactly. (laughs) And that's why I'm using that example because that was the intent. It was just completely rethinking the model. And I think you have the benefit of rethinking the model if you start with a blank sheet of paper. It's really hard if you're very large and you need to shrink your way to efficiency. We want to have efficiency as one core tenet of what we're doing. And that's not what our industry does today, as we were just discussing, because we can find other ways to deal with the inefficiency. We just raise the prices. So what we're saying is the entire how we pick the drugs, how we test the drugs, and how we ultimately get them to people, what is everything that's superfluous that can be eliminated. What are all the tools that we have at our disposal? Some of them are data science, but that's not the end-all be-all to the whole thing. It's just one component. And we're radically thinking about what is it that we can do to do it better, faster, cheaper. And that's core to our being. Can I just ask one specific example? So, you know, people will say, well, gee, if you come out with an equally good but lower priced medicine, uh, you know, you're going to lose in the marketplace. You won't get on the formularies. The PBMs aren't going to get as big a rebate because they're working off of a smaller base. I mean, this is an example of a perverse incentive. How, How do we get around that? We are absolutely looking to um, potentially eliminate that perverse incentive. And there are multiple ways how you can think about doing that without going totally into the details and not having fully done it yet. I will just simply say there's opportunity here to rethink how we're doing that. And the question is, how do you get the medicine to the patient in the most efficient way? Do you at all times need everybody who's involved today? And the answer is probably not. And I think one of the things, Luke, uh, you can tell we're being probably very intentionally cryptic on this side. Because again, as it comes back of what I said, as we build the business, a lot of people and those haters out there went in and we said, we're going to re-engineer how you create drugs, how you prove they work, and how you actually commercialize uh, and sell them. They went into, oh, it's that magic wand and the creating, which is not at all true. The biggest focus on this is in the how you actually bring those through all the way to patients and the reshaping of that. So naturally, we're not talking in all details of that because it is going to involve some very significant reshaping. I think one of the things that hopefully as a company, we will become known for, you know, 
showing as opposed to telling. So hopefully as, as people look forward, as this year progresses, you will see us announce a sort of a series of strategic relationship with entities in the health system that, again, still won't make everything clear, but we'll begin to give directionality as to what some of this reshaping might ultimately look like. It well, could you be- are a startup. And by definition, um, yes. I, I would expect <laughs> that you, like the question of how, how do you do this? Yeah. That, uh, number one, you probably don't know that one all the way, chapter and verse, all the way to the end. I would not expect you to. And number two, if you did, you wouldn't be telling me or anybody else, <laughs> at least for a couple of years, until you were confident you had a head start on your competitors. Correct. So for people to really beat you over the head with like uh, expectation that you got to have this all laid out on terms of how, I think that's unrealistic. Uh, I will want to ask you this in a couple of years. <laughs> we look forward to going through it in detail. Um, okay. But you, part of it, so, you know, you're, you're building a there company. Will be, there will be winners and losers, right? And the question is, uh, you know, can we navigate that really well or not? And a huge part as to whether EQRX is able to deliver on our vision and mission is going to be about how we navigate that part of the system. We feel very confident we can bring a large portfolio of clinically proven equally as good or better uh, drug embodiments across a whole series of great targets across oncology, immunoinflammatory, and other areas where there are huge burdens, as Melanie described. We can have those uh, those drug molecules. We can have the clinical data on that that shows that they're equally as good or better. Can we use that at scale to reshape these parts of how our industry actually gets the drugs to patients in all the system and all the different actors? That's what's going to be necessary for us to actually translate on this vision. You're going to in-license these molecules from existing pharma companies and then run these lean and mean clinical development plans and like start hitting, knocking on the door at the FDA in about three to five years? So we have said we want to have our first drug on the market within five years. Uh, <clears throat> that will come from a molecule that we've in-licensed. Uh, the answer to your question is yes, because we are creating our own capability of creating our own molecules because we want this EQRX to be this sustainable source of great new pharmaceutical innovation in the long run. But again, let's be clear. Anything we start on now won't even enter the clinic for until three years from now. Uh, we are just a startup company. You've just walked around the halls here. You know, there's 20 of us, <laughs> lots of empty space uh, as we look into grow. But we will also be bringing in uh, these molecules. As we say, there are a lot of them right now that are equally as good or better that are not being pursued uh, in the industry. And these are going to come, uh, Luke, from U.S. biotech. They're going to come from multinational companies. They're going to come from European companies. They're going to come from Asian companies. They're going to come from Chinese companies. There is a broad set of intakes that we'll be doing. Last thing I want to ask you about. Now, this is actually relevant for the time at which you're at. Uh, it's the people part. You need to bring in a different mix of people to execute on this objective. And I looked at your website and sometimes, you know, you can read too much into this, but you had, it's like uh, something about like making yourself approachable to uh, members, let's say outside of the innovation community, the, the scientific and venture world. It's, it's like, hey, come talk to us, uh, payers, uh, cost-effectiveness people, let's do lunch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, Tell, t let's t talk a little bit about your strategy on 
putting the, getting the right people, the right mix of people on this team. So I think one of the things that we're looking for is this combination of being deeply steeped in your respective discipline, whatever that might be, whether that's sort of on the early part of the science or whether that's on the clinical trial execution part or whether that's on the commercial side, but then infused with this willingness to challenge conventional wisdom. What can be done differently and how can it be done differently? And not just accepting that things are done the way they have always been done. And um, you'll actually find that that is a rare combination because a lot of the members of this industry have been trained that it's about risk mitigation. That's where we started our conversation. Well, it's a highly regulated industry. Yeah. And so you got, you know, to, you know, behave in certain ways within the guardrails. Of course. And we're not saying that we should be doing, I mean, we should, of course, do everything that's right and within the regulatory fr uh, framework. But at the same time, challenging conventional wisdom means really thinking differently and how do you do that and looking for that in the people that we hire and um, going beyond and merging these two sort of sides of the healthcare ecosystem in EQRX because we need all of that. Payers, providers. Uh, yeah. Christian Yeshwant talked to me about this. He's like, I can't wait to introduce these people I know over here to Alexis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You guys got to you got to get together. It goes back to like you know, we were saying in the beginning, right? There's these two these worlds of core life sciences innovation and then the the health system worlds and the people don't interact, the networks don't intersect. If we are successful at EQRX, we will be a central node of that intersection, both between EQRX, the company, and uh, all those different entities, exactly as you said. And it's one of the reasons why we did the big announcement at JP Morgan, because it was saying, come talk to us. And you know what? They are, right? Very broadly. But also, as you said, our culture inside and the people inside the company is going to reflect that. And we're going to actually have those people working hand in glove together inside EQRX. And it's going to look and feel very differently. You got Peter Bach from Memorial Sloan Kettering as one of your co-founders, yep. um, you know, notable uh, critic of high drug prices. Um, but he doesn't want to just like stand back and throw rocks no. at the industry. He wants, let's think about a, a more fair and decent system. Peter's a constructive guy. He's like, how do we do this differently? Right. He's also a truth teller. And I think that's one of the things in our culture, right? Like sort of, you know, Call a spade a spade. Say it like it is and let's figure out, right? Because that's – if you don't call it like it is, then how are you going to make it better? How are you going to make it different? So like be open, acknowledge things and then figure out how to go do it. Alexis Borisi, Melanie and Alice Sherry, thank you very much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Thanks. A lot of fun. Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>